Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn it then to 2 Timothy. And you, if you don't have a Bible, you should have one under a chair in front of you. You could take that Bible and turn to page 165 in the back and you would be at 2 Timothy. What I want you to do right now is I want you to trust me enough to close your eyes for a second. And as you're closing your eyes, I want you to think. I want you to think about the person who had the most positive impact on your life. You're going to just name one person. Who would that be? It might be a parent. It might be a grandparent. It might be a teacher. It might be a friend or a spiritual leader who led you to Christ or maybe poured into your life spiritually. All right, you have the person in mind? Now, here's what I want you to imagine second. I want you to imagine that that person that you're thinking of has recently become aware that they will soon be leaving the planet. They will soon be headed to heaven. And they have decided to send along to you their very last communication. Now, let me ask you this question. How much would you treasure that communication? How much would you anticipate reading it or hearing what they had to say? Well, men and women, that's what we have in our hands when we look at the book of 2 Timothy. Because, you see, Timothy is the one who had been so deeply impacted by the person of Paul. And Paul is the one who had left that deep spiritual impression in his life, had the most positive impact of anybody apart from the person of Jesus Christ. Some people have called 2 Timothy Paul's last will and testament, or Paul's swan song, or Paul's epitaph. What we have in 2 Timothy are the final words, the, the final perspective, the, the final counsel that Paul gives to Timothy. And it's especially riveting um, counsel when we realize that Timothy was living in a shifting culture. Things were drastically changing in that culture, much like our culture today. And he writes him wanting to help Timothy and other followers of Jesus maintain their spiritual traction in a shifting culture. This is a new series we're starting today. And I think it's especially uh, practical because we face a very similar situation today. We're beginning to quickly sense that the sands of change are definitely moving. Things are happening different in our culture. And as you open up the book of 2 Timothy, it doesn't take very long when you flat out realize this is a pertinent and practical book for everyday life. It is current. It is contemporary. It is relevant. But then again, the Word of God always is, right? Well, here's our plan today as we begin this study on traction. Number one, we're going to spend some time looking at some background of this book. Before we actually get into it, we want to have a sense of what was going on around it. And then we're going to look at an overview of 2 Timothy. And then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the opening verses of 2 Timothy. So that's our plan. 
Let's begin, first of all, by looking at some background. In particular, I want to begin by looking at some background that reminds us of Paul's situation as he writes this letter. As he writes, Paul is in prison. And some of you might be thinking, you know, it seems like Paul's always in prison. Uh, Someone said, Paul was really into stocks and bonds, uh, but not the kind of stocks and bonds that you want to be into. It's been estimated that maybe 25% of his ministry he spent imprisoned. Five years before this letter is written, he was involved in what's called his first imprisonment. His first imprisonment involved being under house arrest. And as you come to the end of the book of Acts, you don't need to turn there, but in Acts chapter 28, it tells us what that first imprisonment was like. It says in verse 16 that Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier guarding him. And in the last couple of verses of chapter 28, it says that Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. He basically rented an apartment and had a guard guarding him. But while he was there, he was welcoming all who would come to him. It was just open, come and go. And he was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. That was his first imprisonment. Eventually, Paul was released. And he had several years of freedom. And earlier in the year in which this book was written, he was rearrested. But you see, the culture had shifted even in those few years, and it had become very anti-Christian. Tradition tells us that in his second imprisonment, Paul was in a, not in a rented apartment where he could just have people come and go, he was in a dungeon environment. And it's possible that he was even in a basement-like dungeon that was originally a cistern where they would store water, and it only had this steel grate at the top of it. You can imagine being in that kind of a basement-like dungeon environment that one of the things you would battle would, you would be cold. It's kind of interesting, some of the facts that are sprinkled through 2 Timothy. Look at chapter 4 of 2 Timothy for a moment. And verse 9, and verse 9 Paul says to Timothy, would you make every effort to come to me soon? But he goes on to say in verse 13, but when you come, would you bring the cloak which I left at Troas? Many people believe that's where he was arrested because he left behind his coat, he left behind his books, he left behind his parchments. Please come see me, Timothy. Don't forget my coat. I need my coat. And then he adds in verse 21, he says, make every effort to come before winter. It's cold in here year-round, but boy, it gets nasty in winter. Please bring my coat. You know, it's interesting, these two different imprisonments that Paul underwent. In his first imprisonment, he doesn't really know what the outcome is going to be. In Philippians 1, he says, I don't know whether I'm going to depart and be with Christ if I'm going to be executed or if I'm going to be released and have the opportunity to come and minister again to you. That's his first imprisonment. But in his second imprisonment, it's very, very different from that. 
Paul knows that his fate has been sealed as he writes this last letter to Timothy. In fact, the end is in view. Look at chapter 4 and verse 6. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. What a beautiful picture that is. And he says, and the time of my departure has come. It's coming soon. In fact, in the same year in which he wrote this letter, later in that year, he was beheaded and went directly to heaven. So that's just a little bit of background. I just want you to have a feel for some of this as we launch into our study on traction. And then the second thing I want us to look at in terms of background is just the shifting cultural environment that was going on. How many people know who was the Roman emperor at this time? Anybody know the name of the Roman emperor? Nasty guy. Begins with an N. Nero, exactly. Nero was the Roman emperor. And I want to tell you about an event that happened three years before 2 Timothy was written. It happened in July of A.D. 64. Nero, who was a very nasty guy, even executing members of his own family, looked around at the palace that he had in Rome, and he said, you know what, this is outdated, this is old. I want to build a new palace. Ultimately, he wanted to build a monument to himself. But he realized that he would not be able to get the Roman government to agree to that. So he had a plan. He conspired. He said, I think we're going to do this. Here's what we'll do. By night, we will set fire to my palace. And then when it burns down, everyone will agree, the Roman assembly and everyone, that we need to build a new palace so that's what Nero did. And that fire burned for seven nights and six days and actually burned one half of the city of Rome to the ground. Now, when half of your city is destroyed, people get irritable. Now, nobody knew openly that he'd planned to set fire. He did this by night. It was a conspiracy. But he realized somebody needed to be blamed, and obviously he felt pretty guilty about the whole thing. So you know what he decided to do? He said, you know what? I'm going to blame the Christians. I am blaming the Christians. The Christians are the problem. The Christians are the enemy. The Christians are the ones we need to get down on. It's kind of interesting how we're beginning to move as a culture in the same way. Suddenly it just seems like we're the ones that are the problem. We're the ones that are narrow-minded. We're the ones that don't think openly enough. So he began to order the Christians to be arrested. And that's part of the governmental shift. Because you see, while the Roman Empire, now the Jews had been very against Christianity, but the Roman Empire had largely been neutral. But now everything changed. And the government became hostile towards Christians. And they began to label Christians as enemies of the state. The problem are Bible Christian people. I mean, that sounds vaguely familiar, what we see going on today. Now, that began three years before 2 Timothy was written. Eventually, it resulted in what's called the Neronian persecutions, which turned very, very ugly. 
the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that one of the things that they would do when they arrested Christians is that they would tie them up, drape animal skins over them to attract wild dogs and then allow the wild dogs just to rip them apart. One other thing he tells us that they would do is they would take flammable material and put it on some of these Christians who'd been arrested and then nail them up on crosses and light them at night as torches so as you moved around Rome, uh, you would have street light to see. See, the culture was collapsing as Paul writes 2 Timothy. And he's really motivated here because he wants to give a spiritual B12 shot to Timothy. He wants to give some counsel to all of the followers of Jesus Christ as they find themselves living in a shifting culture, as they live in a hostile culture. And I think he was very concerned about a whole new generation who would rise up and know how to live in such a culture. And so I think especially young people, this is a tremendous book for you. Great lessons to be learned as we're in this ever-growing hostile culture. So the first thing we want to do is just give you some background, just a feel for what's happening. The second thing we want to do is we want to look at an overview of the book. And you'll find tucked inside of your bulletins today a yellow gold sheet that is an outline that I put together of 2 Timothy. And again, the theme is maintaining spiritual traction in a shifting culture. And I want you to see by looking at that, we basically divided the book into two halves. We say the thrust of the first half, chapters 1 and 2, is on spiritual steadfastness. The thrust of the second half is on doctrinal soundness. Now, in a shifting culture, spiritual steadfastness is vitally critical. And in a shifting culture, doctrinal soundness is vitally important. You notice in those first two chapters, we have summarized chapter 1 by saying the thrust there is on honoring God. And there's a key verse in chapter 1. It's chapter 1, verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The theme in chapter 2 is around the idea of making choices. In a shifting culture, there's a lot of choices to be made. And the key verse there is chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. The theme in chapter 3 is on staying anchored. As the sands begin to shift underneath us, we need to stay anchored. And the key verse there is chapter 3, verse 14. Continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And then the theme in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy is around the idea of finishing well. And the key verse is chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. You know, one of the themes that comes through this book is that he is presenting to us a combat manual. Uh, Notice chapter 2 and verse 3. Notice what he says there. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He's saying, as you're in this shifting culture, 
We are in combat. And I want you to join me in being a good soldier of Christ. And notice a lot of the exhortations throughout this. He says to Timothy, do not be ashamed, chapter 1 and verse 8. He says, retain in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, guard in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, be strong in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, be diligent in chapter 2, verse 15. He says, there are things we are to flee from and there's things we are to run after to pursue, chapter 2, verse 22. He says, we are to enjoy and you are to endure hardship, chapter 4 and verse 5. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 15, be on guard. Because he's saying, we're going to be in some combat in this shifting culture. There's some very interesting pictures he draws of the Christian life. What's the Christian life like? Well, one of the pictures he gives of the Christian life in this book, as we just said, is that of being a soldier. We see that in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Another picture is being a farmer. We learn something about the Christian life by looking at a farmer in chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, Another picture, being a skilled worker in chapter 2, verse 15. Being an athlete in chapter 2, verse 5. Being a vessel that God can use in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Being a servant in chapter 3, verse 24. Being a drink offering. What a beautiful picture that is. We'll talk about that in the future. In chapter 4 and verse 6. There's a shifting culture going on and If you look with me in chapter 3, what Paul is going to say is, you know what, there's a shift going on, and it's not an upward shift, it's a downward shift. So there's a downward drift to the culture. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, he says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. This sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. Man, I'll tell you, our society is fast moving to that where what is really good they don't like. Haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. And I can't think of a phrase that is a better description of our culture today than lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We wanted to do three things today. One thing we said we wanted to do is just give us a little bit of background, what's going on. The second thing we wanted to do is to do a little overview of the book. I hopefully you have a little better handle of where we're going. The third thing we want to do today is we want to look at the opening verses of 2 Timothy. And so we're going to look at verses 1 to 7. And I would invite you to read along in your Bible as I read these opening verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy... My beloved Son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. 
longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. You know what strikes my mind when I read those verses? And I understand the background of what's going on with Paul and the background of what's going on in the culture. You know what strikes me? Paul is not having a pity party. Think about it. He's in this dark, dark dungeon. He can't reach directly the believers that he loves to lead more people to Christ. He's in a cold environment. He's probably shivering every night. He's anticipating winter coming. He knows his time on the planet is very short. His fate has already been sealed. But what do we see? We see someone with his head up. We, someone, we see someone whose confidence is in the person of Jesus. We see him say in the middle of verse 12, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day I see him face to face. Now, given everything that's going on, how does he do that? I mean, if you put yourself in the same environment, how do you avoid having a pity party right here? And, and I think there are, embedded in these verses, four keys to avoiding pity parties. Anybody else here ever struggle with having a pity party? Let me see some hands. Come on, I, I'm, I feel guilty. I have two of them up right now. This is, come on, now, how many people have pity parties from time to time? All right, I feel better now. Four keys to avoiding pity parties. I think these are helpful. You ought to write these down the next time you're on the verge. Key number one is gratitude for your spiritual heritage. Notice in verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. When you're in really dark difficulty, what do we tend to do? Let's be honest. What do we tend to do? We tend to become riveted on ourselves. We begin, become riveted on our situation. We become very self-focused. And you know what happens when you do that? When you become riveted on yourself and riveted on your situation and you become self-focused, you set the table for a very, very expansive pity party. And that's not what Paul's doing. We see coming from him gratitude for his spiritual heritage. Notice he says, I sought to serve God with a clear conscience, the way he lived his life. You know, when you violate your conscience, you lose divine perspective, and you also open the door for the enemy to get his foot in there. He said, I, I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. 
And who is he talking about when he talks about his forefathers? Well, I believe he's talking about his Old Testament forefathers. He's talking about Abraham. He's talking about Noah. He's talking about Joseph. He's talking about Moses. And he says, when I look at that spiritual heritage, I saw a pattern. And that pattern is as they faced difficulty, as they were involved in struggles, as they suffered, they kept on trusting God. Uh, keep your finger here and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. It's a few pages to the right. Hebrews chapter 11. And this is the kind of spiritual heritage he was remembering. And you see it all the way through the chapter. We don't have time to go through it in detail. But it says in, in verse 4, By faith, Abel operated. Verse 7, By faith, Noah operated in his life. Verse 8, By faith, Abraham operated. Verse 23, by faith, Moses operated. And notice it says in verse 25 that he chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Remember, he had all this wealth open to him. Verse 31, by faith, Rahab operated in her life. And then if you even look at verses 36 and 37, we're just jumping through this real quickly. It says other people that I haven't even listed experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment, and they were stoned, and they were sawn in two, and they were tempted, and they were put to death with the sword, and they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, and they were destitute, and they were afflicted, and they were ill-treated. But they operated by faith in God's promises to them. So thus you come to verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, since we have this spiritual heritage out there, see, we need to remember we're part of a bigger picture. Life isn't just about me and even my own Christian life. There's a bigger picture. He said, let us also, the way our spiritual heritage did, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of faith. No wonder it says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, whatever was written in earlier times, this refers to the stuff that's in the Old Testament and for us the New Testament, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I love the way the New Living Translation takes the last part of that verse. It says, they give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises. We're part of a bigger picture. This is about more than me and my difficulty that I'm having. He reminds back in 2 Timothy Peter, of his spiritual heritage. In verse 5, he says, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which was first in your grandmother and your mother. See, Timothy was a third-generation follower of Yahweh God. And he had this heritage of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And we learn from chapter 3 and verse 15 of 2 Timothy that they had taught him the Bible. They had taught him Scripture when he was a young man. Gratitude for your spiritual heritage. It's one key to avoiding a pity party. Now let me ask you this question. 
Whose spiritual DNA lives in you? Whose faith lives in you? It may be part of your physical family line. I remember being a little boy growing up. Uh, my mother would often tell me about her father, my grandfather. And while he was never able to actually get it done, there were multiple times he came oh so close to becoming a pastor. It's part of my spiritual heritage. That had an influence on the way that I thought. Maybe part of your physical family line. It may be part of your spiritual family line. Maybe it's the teacher that you had or the pastor that you had or the, the leader or the mentor. And what Paul is saying is we need to have gratitude for that spiritual heritage. We need to continue in that spiritual heritage. Part of a bigger picture. Let me ask you a second question. What spiritual DNA are you laying down right now? You know, for your own family, for your kids, for your friends. Four keys to avoiding spiritual pity parties. The first one is gratitude for our spiritual heritage. The second one is an interesting one, and that is commitment to affirm others. What's the strongest temptation you have when you're involved in a pity party? You focus on yourself, right? Oh, woe is me, woe is me, woe, 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 woe. And one of the keys to avoiding it is a commitment to affirm others. Look at verse 3. He says to Timothy, I thank God for you, Timothy. I thank God for you. Who are you thankful for? When's the last time you went up to him and said, I am thankful to God for you, and here is why? Commitment to affirm other people. Look again at verse 5. He says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. It was in your grandmother. It was in your mother. And I am absolutely certain it is in you as well. What is he really saying to Timothy? He's saying, I have seen authentic faith in you. I have seen you trust God when it wasn't easy to trust God. And he was affirming Timothy. He affirms Timothy also in verse 6. He was affirming Timothy's gifting from God. He says, for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Apparently, some special spiritual gift was given to Timothy um, by the Apostle Paul. We know from the New Testament that the norm is, is that we get a spiritual gift, every one of us, at the moment of the new birth. But he's affirming his gifting. We all have gifts, and we all need affirmation of our gifts. Sometimes people say to me, Bruce, I know you've been teaching for a long time. You know, it just must feel normal. You know what? I need affirmation of that. It's amazing how many doubts come my way. I shared before, sometimes I go on vacation and I come back and think, I can't do this. And so we need to affirm one another in our gifting, the abilities that God has given to us. And he says in verse 6, kindle this 
afresh. I think the NIV says, fan it into a flame. Seems to be a picture here. You know, in those days when all of their warmth came from a fire, they would have the fire going at night, and then you'd come in the morning and the fire would have died down. And so one of the things you would do is you'd go blow on those coals and kind of get them going again as you anticipated a new day. And I think really what he's saying to him is you've got a gift and you need to keep developing that. You need to keep excelling in that. He's affirming Timothy here. Do you see that? Four keys to avoiding a pity party. Number one, gratitude for our spiritual heritage. Number two, commitment to affirm others. Number three, consistent intercessory prayer. Intercessory means you pray for somebody else. Look at verse three. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience in the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because I think everybody knows this is important. You know, again, you get in a pity party. Why? Because I'm just focused on my world. One of the keys to avoiding that is consistent intercessory prayer, being a faithful intercessor for others. And I just want you to know, this is part of the process I go through. When I was studying through this passage this week, this week I was actually driving across town thinking about this. And I came under incredible conviction. In fact, it was almost like God popped my head against the window. Because you see, there's something I I used to do. I did this for many years, and anytime I was driving across town, I prayed for other people. And somewhere along the line, I'm not even sure how it began to happen, I started to listen to the radio a little bit more. Sometimes it's, it's listening to the Christian radio. Nothing wrong with that. But I suddenly realized, you know what? A lot of that intercessory prayer time, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Gratitude for our spiritual heritage, commitment to affirm others, consistent intercessory prayer. There's a fourth key. Before we look at that, I want to remind you that I am old. I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and and one of my favorite things when I, I grew up in the 50s and 60s was the original TV Superman show with George Reeves. Anybody ever remember that? I don't know. If you go on the internet, if you haven't heard the audio of the beginning of this, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, he could bend steel in his bare hands. He had x-ray vision, and he was involved, as it said, every week at the beginning of the show in a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. And I loved it. Because he had power beyond a mortal. And a lot of times I would find myself standing with my fists on my hips, my elbows out, just thinking about how cool it would be to have power beyond a mortal. Well, the truth of the matter is we do. And that's the fourth key to avoiding a pity party, and that is daily dependence on the Holy Spirit. Say, where did you get that from? Well, look at verse 7. It says, God has not given us a spirit with a little less of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Now, the translators think that the best way to translate the word spirit here is with a little less. It's very possible that you could put a capital S there referring to the Holy Spirit. But in one sense, it doesn't make any difference because the capital S spirit 
that works inside our little s spirit is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who strengthens our spirit. And again, we're just being transparent today. All of us, I don't care, there's none of you left out, even if you won't admit it publicly. But all of us at times have these flashes of inadequacy. Our confidence begins to wane, especially when the circumstances start to press in on us and fear raises its head and the challenges of ministry can loom way too large or challenges of our situation. Where do you go when you know that you need resources beyond the resources that you have? Because our own competence is not going to cut it. Well, that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Notice he says to Timothy, our God has not given us a spirit of timidity where we just go, it's just too hard, it's too intimidating. I don't think I can handle this. It's going to get tough here in the, in the coming decades. I don't know. I think I'll just shrink into the background. No, no, no. It's not a spirit of timidity. It is a spirit of power, supernatural ability that God has given to us. And we need supernatural ability when we have to face difficult circumstances. It is a spirit of love. That's that agape love, the fruit of the Spirit, a commitment of my will to your needs and best interest, regardless of the cost. We need that kind of a spirit in the face of having to deal with difficult people. It's a spirit of discipline, sound thinking, and self-control, and we need that when we have to face difficult temptations. Someone has said this, the problem before us is never as great as the power within us. Listen to that again. The problem before us is never as great as the power within us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Remember what Paul said to the Philippians? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, every believer really has an S on his chest. But it stands for Spirit-filled. Now, having looked at all of that, we want to walk away from our text today with some life response. And I'm going to suggest two things that you need to do beginning today and into this week. Number one is to read. Number two is to respond. Number one, what do I mean by read? I mean read 2 Timothy three times this next week. And as you're reading, you're asking yourself the question, God, what do you want to teach me? What do you want to teach me? You might read it in a New Living Translation or a translation like The Voice. It just brings a little bit newness to us. So we read. Secondly, we need to respond to what we've looked at today. Remember, we've talked about gratitude for our spiritual heritage. Respond to that. There's somebody that you need to write a note to. You need to send an email to. You need to give a phone call to. We've talked about a commitment to affirm other people. Do that this week with at least one person where you say, I thank God for you. These are the strengths I see in your life. Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing it just the way it needs to be done. And then consistent intercessory prayer. Do that. One of the things I freshly committed myself to is I'm driving, whenever I'm driving across town or I'm driving to Oklahoma City, it's going to be intercessory prayer time again. Bruce, I'm re-engaging in that. And then we talked about daily dependence on the Holy Spirit. Might suggest that you memorize Philippians 4.13. It's not very hard to do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when you recite that verse back, 
do it with your fists on your hips and your elbows out, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word. It's a great word from you, and, and we need this. Where our culture is going, we need to hear what you have to say. And we would pray that you would keep changing our hearts, keep growing us into the spiritual heritage that many of us have received. We want to be a spiritual heritage to other people. We want to honor Jesus Christ. And we pray that would happen with our life, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together as we close.